So welcome to ANC. I'm not Brandon, I'm not Jen, I'm Jason, and it's always fun to follow Jen because she, she leaves quite, a, quite awake. But uh, this is our second Sunday in Lent. If you've been tracking with us or if you've picked up your bulletin, you can follow the readings. We've actually got them set out daily and then also for the Sundays. It's, this is a time when the church around the globe, and if this is new to you, uh, I wish I had fresh eyes for this, uh, but it, it's the time when the church around the globe kind of goes on that 40-day pilgrimage back to that place of being prepared for the risen Christ on Easter morning. And I remember as a 30-something-year-old Christian when I realized for the first time that there's actually a way to get inside this Easter journey that doesn't just plop you all of a sudden one weekend and like, gotta go buy a pink and orange tie because it's Easter, right? And how do we wrap ourselves around the truth that Christ rose from the dead? Well, the church in her wisdom has put together this concept that we are on this journey of 40 days of preparation for Easter. This is the time when Christ's victory over sin, over death, over hell, over the grave, over traffic jams, and your obnoxious neighbor, because those are all the important things, right? Christ's victory over all of those things is set. And so we're, mo- you didn't, gosh, guys. I really, that, I thought maybe someone would laugh at that, I guess, <laughs> uptight today. But this is the time when we're moving in the direction of celebrating Christ's victory over all those things. In case this interests you, the word Lent comes from the old Middle English word, Lengthen, which is the word that we have for lengthen, and what it actually refers to is just simply the time of year when the days are lengthened. So it's not super religious, it's just that's why we call it Lent. Over the centuries, Lent has become a season of fasting, of prayer, and of giving, sacrificial giving. And if you're anything like me and you geek out on how things are connected, because that's like my, my thing, it's really interesting to know that right now around the globe, people are talking about Genesis 12, Psalms 121, Romans 4, and the story of Nicodemus. Millions, several hundred millions of believers around the world are focusing on the stories, the same stories that we're going to be looking at today. And these three disciplines that shape us into being more prepared and ready for, that in, in, uh, for the, the victory of Christ. So if you didn't get last week's podcast, do that. And it's funny, if you look at our podcast numbers, we're a large church. We don't all show up, but, but uh, definitely catch Jen's podcast from last week. I was tempted to just kind of re-preach what she said. I think that, that wouldn't be very funny. That's like showing up to a company Halloween party dressed as your boss's wife. <laughs> Just trust me, that's not a good idea. But she masterfully traced the arc of salvation from Genesis to the Gospels, and she put it into this single idea, which I think is so well said. It's this ongoing invitation to conversion. Now, I don't know what theological stripe you hail from, but for some folks, that's kind of a weird idea. But I think it's deeply scriptural and it's very evident. There's this ongoing invitation to release the reins of your life to the lordship of Christ. And in the doing of that, over time, is when we become the kind of people that I think Jesus envisions. Everything can be, Jen said last week, everything can be, if we allow it, an invitation to become more like Jesus. Everything. That traffic jam, that obnoxious neighbor. That canceled flight, that disease diagnosis, that ended relationship, all of that can move us in the direction, if embraced properly, in the direction of Christ-likeness. This was Adam and Eve's choice. This is Jesus' choice during his 40-day testing, and it remains our choice during Lent and during our daily walk with God. The gospel is a self-revealing, heaven-emptying movement of God towards humankind that offers us a gentle and ongoing invitation. That's the whole thing right there in a nutshell. An invitation to what, you might ask? Well, to give God control of our lives based on the belief that he is good, that he is good. And the reality is that the chaos of our lives often reflects the truth that we don't accept that. We'd rather do for ourselves. 
because we know we can handle it. But that's the invitation. In his Ash Wednesday sermon, Pope Francis offered this message to the faithful. I'm just going to read it because I can't say it any better than Pope Francis. Lent is the time to say no to the asphyxia of prayer that soothes our conscience. To the asphyxia of almsgiving that leaves us only self-satisfied. And to the asphyxia, that's an interesting word, of a fast that makes us feel good. Lent is the time to say no to the asphyxia born of relationships that try to find God while avoiding the wounds of Christ present in the wounds of his brothers and sisters. In a word, Lent is a time to say no to all those forms of spirituality that reduce the faith to a ghetto culture, a culture of exclusion. So now that we're in the thick of a season of self-imposed discipline, which is what Lent actually is, hopefully for redemptive purposes, not just merely to say we did it, I feel compelled to remind us of something, and actually what I'm doing is I'm reminding myself, here it is, we're not going to move God with our devotion. Let me just deflate the jumpy house of Lent in your mind. We are not going to impress God with our fast from Facebook. He's not going to be moved by the chocolate that remains in your cabinet, untouched, until Easter. Remember, Jesus has some innovative and, frankly, some exasperating things to say about the spiritual disciplines, namely about prayer. What does he tell us? Twice he tells us two things to do. Number one, don't do it in public. And number two, don't use a lot of words. That eliminates every prayer I think I've ever heard in public, pretty much. Right? These disciplines of fasting, of prayer, and of giving, Jesus innovates and he puts it in a place that's just out of reach. About prayer, he says, don't do it in public and don't use a lot of words. On fasting, he'll say, be secretive about it. Don't go around bragging. Don't go around gloating. And in terms of sacrificing, he's going to say, here's what it looks like. Just let him nail you to a stake. That's what sacrifice is going to look like. This is what becoming the kind of people that can say Jesus is Lord looks like for us. Lent is no time to move God. He won't be moved by that. But here's the truth, and you need to hear this. He's already eternally moved by you. He is hopelessly, eternally, head over heels, infatuated with you on your worst day. There is no Lenten way to impress God. I need you to hear that. Because with that severe message of discipline in, 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 that, in that we've got to do this, we gotta, often what's, what's happening is, is in our mind we're saying, I need to get God's attention, and here's the truth. It's a tragedy if you don't already realize that he watches your every move. The psalmist says he watches you when you sleep. I know I can't prove this, but I think that's when I'm my least attractive. I don't know. <laughs> Which is saying something. I don't know because I don't watch myself when I sleep. But think about that image of a God who made all that is, who hovers and can't wait for you to wake up. He's so enthralled with you. There is no Lenten way to move your creator to notice your discipline. He's already on your channel. Lent is about us catching up to that reality. And we've got some work to do if we're going to catch up to that. It's about us schooling our flesh, right, and becoming the kind of people who look and act like Jesus through a million yeses to those gentle invitations to let him lead. All right, so let's read our story for today. The Gospel of John. Some of these words are so familiar, you're going to have to really stay focused to see anything at all because you guys all know John 3.16. And if you don't, at least you watch football and you know what it means because there's somebody on the sidelines with that painted on their face, which is really helpful. That's what you call preaching the gospel, maybe. I don't know. So John 3, chapter, chapter 3. Let's read these words. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the, the Jewish ruling council. And he came to Jesus at night. Notice those words, at night. 
and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. Simple math. Jesus replied, very, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Don't you love an answer to a question you didn't ask? This happened to you, parents? You walk in the room, I didn't do it. I didn't, didn't actually ask you that. Fascinating. He says, we know you're a good guy. And Jesus says, here's, I got something for you. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Nicodemus says, well, how can someone be born when they're old? He, Nicodemus asks, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. All the moms in the room wince. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or from where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit, Jesus says. How can this be, Nicodemus answered or asked. Jesus looks at him, and at this point, he's getting a little snarky right? He says, you're Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but, things you do, but still you people do not accept our testimony. Verse 12, I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then are you going to believe if I speak to you of heavenly things? Basically saying, don't come and call me a teacher of heavenly truth. You can't even understand the earthly metaphors I'm using, much less the heavenly metaphors. At this point, if I'm Nicodemus, I'm thinking, I got to get out of here quick. I'm sure glad it was night when I arrived so nobody can notice when I leave. Verse 13, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who comes from heaven, the Son of Man. Verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That'll take a little explaining, and we'll work on that in a second so that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And here are the words that you've heard so many times. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Bow your head briefly with me and let's pray a prayer of invitation. Holy Spirit, transform us. Do not stop short this morning. Have your way in our heart and in our minds. In your name we pray. Amen. So for this season of Lent, we're given the gift of a couple of stories. Some of these will be familiar to you. Nicodemus, the Samaritan woman at the well, a man born blind, and then Lazarus. These will be the stories we'll reflect on until uh, Palm Sunday, that sixth Sunday of Lent. These will be our portals. These will be our invitations. And I'm so glad they're stories, and primarily from the book of John. There's something about John that's just so, so earthy and easy to understand. Here's a good rule of thumb for you. If it's in the Bible, it matters. Simple, right? If it's in the Bible, it matters. You can dialogue day and night until the cows come home about what's not in there. But let me just tell you this. Know that if it is in there, it matters. But here's something that I've learned. Certain things have extra special importance, right? It all matters, but certain things are weighted differently. Like when Jesus talks about the purpose of his coming, if we can catch Jesus speaking on record or on label, Caleb, in your language, if we can catch Jesus speaking on label about what the purpose of heaven is, Sit down and take notes because this matters more than some of the other things. It's gold. It's precisely what we have in today's message. Early in John's witness, eyewitness account, we have a major player, as it were, Nicodemus, someone everyone would know in the religious space of Jesus' time, comes to him at night, having figured out that Jesus comes from the Father. He comes to poke around to see the little white man behind the curtain, right? The little guy pulling the levers. What's the, what's the story here? How is all this happening? He concedes that the Jewish council has already agreed, they've figured it out, 
that this rabbi came from God. They knew it. Question for you, and we actually ask questions here. How did they know? I want to hear from you. How did they know? How did the Jewish council know so early on that Jesus had come from the Father? His miracles, absolutely. What else? How'd they know? The authority with which he taught. Yeah. Sounds like they drawn their conclusion, right? Like, like, isn't that the point? We have to decide what to make of this Jesus? Sounds like they'd already figured this out. Interesting. Jesus is going to take this off the rails quick. I think they knew he came from God because he did some pretty cool stuff, right? Stuff that not everybody else did. That's proof, right? It is, it's proof that he comes from God if in your mind you're working with a limited script with fixed narrative outcomes. Now, hang on with me. See, if the good guys always get the good stuff in your world and always do the good stuff, then clearly Jesus is good. But Uncle Nico here will soon trip up on the reality of what good means and what it means to follow or to believe in this young Messiah who's having all this splash at the South by Southwest in Jerusalem. Nicodemus comes under the cover of darkness, right? He leaves the same way under the cover of darkness, and as best we can figure Nicodemus never comes out as a follower of Jesus. He never steps out of the shadows. Because apparently the goodness that Jesus brings is something different than what he had gambled on. You see, Jesus is not someone to be believed. Jesus is someone to be followed. And that's a fundamental difference. This is such a strange conversation. I would have loved to have been in the chop house editing room when John's deciding what stories to put in his book. I, would have lo- I wonder if they put this in here because it was particularly embarrassing to a Pharisee. I don't know. I can tell you this. We make a great mistake if we read the story as if we're not Nicodemus. So there's your little clue. I have a genuine sympathy for Nicodemus. He came basically saying some basic stuff. You're a good guy. And Jesus hits him with this craziness, right? There's, there's nothing easy to understand about this conversation. And it's made, it isn't made any easier by Jesus' evasive or non-answers. You know, think about it. It's possible to die twice, but honestly, to be born twice, ladies, a grown person born twice, like, that's not really possible, right? That's just not happening. We're not exactly sure what Nicodemus came to accomplish under the cover of night, but what we know is that Jesus is not super impressed with his confession. Jesus is good indeed. Of course Jesus is good. But his particular brand of goodness cannot be accepted once. Now hear me. Jesus cannot be believed in once. Jesus cannot be loved once. Hearkening back to Jen's sermon from last week. This is a lifelong decision to follow Jesus. Jesus cannot be trusted once. It's an ongoing relationship with Jesus. He can't be received one time. If that's your theology, stretch it a little. And ask yourself about all those moments in your life where you were at that crossroads and you had to decide again, I do, Jesus. Right? Married folk in the room? Did you say it once and was that good forever? Wow. Right? That I do has a million other I do's that come behind it. And that's what makes marriage. That's what makes following Jesus real. Uncle Nico here discovers that there's a trajectory, a process, a journey, a continual requirement to say yes if Jesus is to be followed. A single word picture nails this, and this is what Jesus says. Going back to verse 14, I'll just read it. Just as Moses lifted up a snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Do you guys know what Jesus is talking about there? There was this point where the Hebrews had left Egypt, and God is asking them to trust in his providence, and their complaining results in the 
bizarre creation of a bunch of poisonous serpents that starts biting the Hebrews, and they start dying from snake bites. And God tells Moses, make a stake, a bronze stake with serpents wrapped around it. Some of you may have seen this on ambulances rushing by in the city of Austin, but lift this up. And those who can cast their eyesight on this form of, apparently, this early form of salvation of Jesus, they will be saved from the snake bite. Jesus, or John, preserves this conversation in which Jesus says, just like Moses, I'm going to be lifted up. And that is not a positive thing. And this is where Nick, Nico gets stuck. I'm calling him Nico. Do not call him Nicodemus because I think it's kind of a silly name. But y'all, I, we already agreed y'all aren't laughing today, so don't start now. He's saying that the serpent on a bronze stake that, is, that spared the lives of the Hebrews in Numbers 21 is an early form of Jesus. And here's the deal. To glance on him is to live. It, to believe in him is to live. He's talking about, though, his crucifixion. And this is what he could not get his followers to understand and to swallow. If Nicodemus couldn't understand the idea of rebirth, surely he wasn't ready to understand heaven's ultimate plan. And what is it? To conquer death and sin by dying a gory, bloody criminal's death. He wasn't ready for that. This is why I think Jesus is almost mocking his mentality. A Roman cross was going to be the agency to defeat death itself. And in this single movement, single act, our deepest, most primal fear will be resolved if we can grasp it. And that is what? Our question, does God hate us? Does God condemn us? Are we too far gone? That driving heartbeat that keeps us up at night, that keeps us our, our souls in permanent disquiet, it's going to be solved once and for all if we can embrace it. In the ancient times, it was a serpent on a stake, but this time, it's Jesus on a stake made of wood. He will answer that final question for us, and his answer will be, no, God is not done with us. God is not angry at us. Jesus came to be lifted up so we could know once and for all that heaven does not condemn us. Heaven is moving towards us to restore all of us, no exceptions, all, period, of, period, us, period. I learned to write from Jen Hatmaker. Heaven became flesh to make a single purchase, us, you. Let that land, all of us. This is what heaven is doing. This is what Jesus is saying on label when he talks about the purpose of his coming. He came for it. He wants it back. Let's recall the theme given to us on the Feast of St. Luke last fall for this Lenten season. It's simply put this way. Christ becomes poor so that we could know the riches of heaven. We're not elevating poverty as some elevated stance. We're saying heaven bankrupted its account so we could understand once and for all that we are not too far gone, that God is not done with us, so we could understand the riches of heaven. According to Jesus in verse 16, the purpose of God sending him into the world was to save it, not the church, not the good folk, to save the world. And there's a difference. To save all of it, he wants it back. Surely Nicodemus, Israel's teacher, could understand this, right? Apparently not. I was thinking this week about movies. The only time I actually get to catch movies that are semi-new is when I fly in an American Airlines that's got a big enough jet to have the entertainment system. I usually don't fly American, but when I do, I get to see movies that are, they say they're still in the theaters, and I don't know. But anyway, I was watching a movie called The Accountant, and I don't recommend it. It's, uh, it wasn't great. Um, but it did jog my thinking because of its predictability. Like, I knew exactly when they were going to fall in love. I knew exactly who was going to die first. You just know, right? I mean, you just... We're used to it. It's a narrative that we understand. You know the story. This smart guy takes on the system, falls in love with the odd girl with glasses who's just the office help, but she's actually brilliant. You know the story. 
And then, of course, everything comes to this predictable climax, and everything is resolved with some nice credits and a great song, and everything is handled. Business is handled. The point is, we're accustomed to certain plots and certain motifs. Certain plot structures mean something to us. We're familiar with them. They orient us and reconfirm our identity in a world where we already have our minds made up who are the good guys, who are the bad guys, who's in and who's out. These plot themes are familiar to us, right? Neuroscience tells us that our brains will always run the path of least resistance, which means the the path in our brain that we're most familiar with. We know the good guy when we first see him. We know who's good. We know who's bad. We know the plot lines. Had that movie, The Accountant, ended any other way, I would have been like, huh? Like the song that starts in G and ends in a suspended E minor. For you non-musicians in the room, that just feels creepy, right? It's that unresolved thing. We've been shaped by the oldest of Western civilization's narratives, which are the person loses himself and journeys back to the self in perfect climactic resolve so that you can wrap the story and go to bed and not think about it again because everything ends up where it should be. But every once in a while, we bump into a narrative that throws us. Remember the first time you saw Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon? Anybody around in the 2000? Half the, half the room was born in 2003, I think. I actually, I was in a hotel room in Miami this week, and I didn't have a lot to do other than sermon prep, so I went back and watched this movie. And the reason I got busted is because Samantha texted me. She says, hey, you because I sometimes use Samantha's Hulu sign-in. Take that, off the, take that off the thing. She's like, that's an old movie. I'm like, yeah, I'm looking for this. Because I remember the first time I saw it. Now, it wouldn't have been in 2000. It would have been, you know, predictably several years later. But I remember the first time I saw it. It leaves you hanging. Like, the couple doesn't become the couple. Like, he gives the sword. Anybody know the movie? He tries to get rid of the sword so that he doesn't have to go back to that life, and he tries to settle with his lifelong love, but he can't do it. And the young couple, she floats away in a cloud. They don't, and you're just like, oh, my American brain hurts so bad right now because it needs to resolve, right? Sometimes you bump into a plot that makes you go, huh? This is what I think is eating at Nicodemus. He can't reconcile his mind to what Jesus is proposing, and this is the point of Lent to reacclimate us, to bring us back into the reality that the protagonist does win in the end. Love does win. It will conquer, but only after it dies a criminal's death. And this is what we can't get our head around, can't get our heart around. We will find our way back to an empty tomb, one tiny step at a time, but there's some work we've got to do to reconcile to the process that Jesus is proposing. We are not going to get there by any other way. Death is the only door. And I wish it was better news for us today. You might say, well, I don't feel like this. I didn't feel like this in the beginning when I first gave my life to Christ. Everything was all forgiveness and freedom and amazingness and the world was lovely. And now I think I'm being attacked by the devil and and I gotta, you know, get my spiritual warfare on and I gotta start doing all this crazy stuff because it can't be this, right? Because to follow Jesus is up and up and victory after victory. And Jesus seems to say at every occasion when questioned, it's actually down and down less and less until the only thing left is the willingness to pass the reins to God and say, you lead, I follow. But fear not. This doesn't happen overnight, thank goodness. We move to the place of total surrender as slowly as we need to. It seems that heaven has inexhaustible patience, taking every setback and turning it into a setup for a deeper awareness of how we're moving in the direction of Christ-likeness. We are the people who initially said, Jesus is Lord. Be Lord of my life. And then we spend the rest 
of our earthly existence trying to figure what in the heck we meant when we said that. We grow into layers of awareness all the time. It never stops. It's a bottomless onion. One layer leads to another, leads to another, leads to another, and you kick this addiction, and it leads to another, and you you deal with that brokenness, and it leads to another, and you deal with this unforgiveness, and it just leads to another, and it never stops, and it's a process. And here's the thing. We all know this. To not grow is to die. But here's what I'm getting my head around. Growth is itself a picture of death. Growth is a kind of death. Growth is painful because what are we dying to? We're letting something go to embrace something different, to move in the direction of Christ-likeness. Growth is its own kind of dying process. And this is what Nicodemus can't get his head around. How can it be that moving forward means to move back to the womb where helplessness and total dependency and pre-linguistic connections, how do we do this? Jesus is saying forward is this way, and Nicodemus is just, no, I don't think it is. Brian McLaren uses a a metaphor, the metaphor of migration, in in, in a book called The Great Spiritual Migration, how the world's largest religion is seeking a better way to be Christian. I, I do recommend this. I don't recommend the account, but I recommend this. He's using this idea of migration to to, to talk about how it is that there is a point for all of us where we simply must get up and move to a place that we can't identify. We can feel it, but we've never been there. And in fact, nobody we know has ever been there. This is the journey following Christ. It's to let go of what we know. In Genesis 12, the invitation to Abraham is, hey, I'm going to make you a pretty cool dude, but you're going to have to trust me. And it's going to start by buying a ticket to nowhere and I'm not going to tell you where we're going. And Abraham says yes. And in Romans 4, it says that that was counted to him as righteousness. This migration, this idea, is so built into our faith. There's a point in our development where we simply have to get up and move to a place that we've never been. My favorite example of that would be the monarch butterfly. And the reason for that is because they migrate to a grove of trees not far from where I grew up in Mexico. 45 million butterflies make their way from Canada and the western U.S. to this little grove of pine trees in the high-altitude mountains of the state of uh, Michoacan, or actually it's in the Estado de Mexico. It's fascinating because uh, scientists tell us that the monarchs will often go back to not only the same grove of trees, but the same tree. But here's what's interesting. They're three generations removed from the last butterfly that knew that place. They die in transit three times. They migrate by some built-in instinct to go somewhere. They know when they're there, and yet their great-great-grandfather was the last person there. It's a bizarre thing to realize. They find it because they know they got to go. And why do they go? Because there's nothing to sustain them through the cold winters of the western, western U.S. and Canada. A couple of points about migration. And I want, you, I want us to really think about this and internalize this concept. Number one, The need to move is instinctual. You can't stop it. You can tamp it down. You're not going to stop it. The need to get up and move is just something that is unquenchable. Number two, it takes us somewhere we've never been. So if you've been there, that's not the place. Keep going. If it's familiar, keep moving. If it feels comfortable, keep hauling. You're not there yet. Migration is instinctual, and it takes us somewhere we've never been. Number three, it's the only way to survive. Seriously, the food source does not exist for us to stay put. 
you wonder why the institutions of religion are the last to move with the spirit and the last to move towards the broken in our world today. Why? Because they're surviving on food that went stale generations ago because that's not how faith works. We've built the best we can do. We've built institutions. And one of the alternate readings in the lectionary today from Matthew is where the disciples see Jesus transfigured and they say, this, this is it. Let's build a temple here. Let's freeze it. This is what we want. Jesus says, no, that's not how this works. We're always on the move. Always on the move. Always in migration. It's the only way to survive. All you're left with is religion if you don't. And oh, I don't know if you've ever been on the wounding side of that exchange, but let me tell you, it will sear your soul and it will make you think that God is angry at us because all religion can present us is systems to please God. It's not designed to sustain us. We have to move with the Spirit. So number one, migration comes from instinct. Number two, it's taking us someplace we've never been. Number three, it's the only way to survive. And number four, it never won't be full of danger and risk. It's always going to be life-threatening. I think in a way, as a church, we're in the middle of this process. We're picking up some stable things that have been true for a while, and we're moving in a direction because we're sensing the Spirit saying do that, and there's no guarantee we survive this. But here's what I do know. To stay is to die. To stay put is to die. It's to freeze a single revelation and say we're just going to continue to make soup off the same old ham bone, and no one is filled with that. So what is the gospel for us today? Lifting from our passages in Genesis 12 and Psalms 121 and Romans 4. Here's the idea. Jesus' absurd invitation to Nicodemus actually makes sense. It's absurd to Nicodemus, but it actually makes sense. If we will allow God, he will do the laboring to bring new life. But this only happens if we yield our will to heaven's objective. He will do the rebirthing. He will do the sustaining. It won't be up to us to make it happen. It won't be us, up to us to whip it into action. He will do the laboring if we just allow him. The good news is that God has new life in store for all of us. The bad news is that in order to engage that process, we have to relinquish all control. All control. Nothing could be more helpless than a newborn child. Trust me, I've had a few. I've had five. Nothing could be more helpless Nothing could be a better picture of total dependence. Every single need has to be met for it. And Jesus is saying, this is what moving forward looks like. It's the only viable path forward. And our ongoing invitation to new life will always be through death. I wish it was simpler, but it isn't. You know, in the liturgical church, they even suspend the use of the word hallelujah during Lent. Did you know that? They don't even allow themselves to say hallelujah until Easter morning. Why? Because we're doing everything we can to get back into a framework that says there is no life that does not come through death. You can say God is good all you want. You can know Jesus is the way all you want. And you may never step out of the shadows of darkness and make that full-on open disclosure to the world that God is good and he is Lord unless you understand this principle that it's the total loss of self-determination that equals disciple of Christ. So I don't know what this means for you today. I really don't. I know what it means for me. I don't know what, what new process or what old process or what process, period, you need to embrace to allow God to, to take control of your life. I don't know what it is, but I know that you know. And I'm just here to remind you what the gospel is for us, and that is that Jesus is the way, and that invitation will cost us everything, but it's the only way forward. Let's pray. Stand to your feet. Band, you can join me.
I don't know what kind of words you might need to deploy in order to make yourself understood to God this morning, but it's probably something as simple as yes. In years, years past, when I was leading worship and writing music, I, I wrote a song that it's, it's really that simple. We say yes, that's what we say. And we say it all the time, and we keep saying it, and that really is our role. So I don't know what words you need to make that understood between you and God, but really, I guess you're talking more to yourself this morning. But I would encourage you to find those words in the next couple of songs. Um, we're going to take communion as a church. We do this every Sunday. There's four lamps around the room, and so approach the table when you're ready. But take, that, take this moment and slide into the placing here of Lent. Take it in real time, step at a time. The invitation is to understand that life comes through death and newness comes through rebirth. And so find the words to say that to the Holy Spirit this morning. Say that to God this morning. I'm going to give you just a moment to do that, and then I'll pray.